0: Kind of the soul. The soul. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison hello everybody i should do a doctor next thing hi everybody (laughs) hi derek davison how are you doing Yeah, uh, nothing like uh, Simpsons references from 1992 to bring exactly. in all the young well, listeners. It's when it was
1: good, I mean, you can't do new ones. So yeah, no,
0: yeah, that that's actually a good point. And I've noticed here's a a little secret for all you podcast listeners out there. A lot of the jokes made on many podcasts are actually just repurposed Simpsons jokes that you don't know about because you're too young. So uh, listen for those going forward. A lot of clowns
1: in Congress jokes. I think we could get away with some of that. So yeah, yeah. So anyone uh, who once a, in Congress,
0: yeah, look that up. It's a it's a good joke. But there's a lot going on in the world that we've got to get to, uh, and probably one of the most important things uh, that's happened recently is that North Korea has tested a rail bomb, a rail missile. Derek, could you describe what's going on there? Yeah, they've had two.
1: They've actually tested two. It looks like new weapon systems in the last few days. Um, they tested. Uh, a new long-range cruise missile over the weekend, I think uh, twice, actually. Um, And then um, just... Wednesday, yesterday, I guess, as we're recording this, they test-fired two what look like short-range ballistic missiles, which uh, are not new. But what is appears to be new is that the uh, launch system is rail-based, so you could right. conceivably roll these things around on rail networks and avoid, um, you know, preemptive strikes and, and still have a retaliatory cap- capability, which is how they framed it
0: and they landed in like not official japan territory right but sort of like an ocean that japan has a connection to it's like a specific legal designation so that's like everyone's scared about these because these could these could reach japan and uh, us troops in japan
1: yeah they they splashed down i think the japanese government complained about i think it was the ballistic test but i maybe i'm wrong maybe it was the cruise missile test but i one of them splashed down like very close to Japan's exclusive economic zone, uh, right, which is exclusive the, economic the international zone, right. designation that gives you some, you know, maritime cushion, I guess. Um, so they didn't I mean, they didn't splash down in like J- Japanese waters per se, but they, they came close enough to to sort to of raise people, assholes, assholes. <laughs> which the North Koreans haven't been doing. Um, for a while. I mean, they've they've conducted tests. They conducted a couple of tests that like overflew Japan, which is really provocative. But uh, that was years ago. Uh, so this is this is a little more provocative than they've been recently. And the what what's particularly interesting here is that uh, the South Koreans tested their own missiles right. uh, this week and, and sort of uh, the uh, dueling Korean missile tests, which um, is a is a rarity. I can't remember any
0: time that's happened before. Yeah, which doesn't bode well for any diplomatic negotiations. But Derek, I'm actually curious. We've never talked about this, but what's your take on nuclear uh, proliferation? Are you a Waltzian, a Kenneth Waltzian who famously argued right before he died that Iran should get a nuclear missile? Or are you someone who thinks (laughs) the only thing to do is to go down to nuclear zero? I mean, in an ideal world, I'm obviously nuclear zero. But if I were, you know, a small power, um, particularly one that was hostile to the United States and to which the United States was hostile, it seems difficult. To argue against getting nuclear weapons, what's your take on that sort of theoretical no, issue?
1: No, yeah, I mean it, it really depends on on your perspective. As a as a comfortable Westerner who's uh, living in the United States under the protection, I guess, uh, of the world's largest nuclear arsenal, and uh, you know, I feel very confident that if we were to get to global zero in terms of nuclear w- weapons, which I support. Uh, that the United States would probably be the last country to, to abide yeah, by that definitely. standard. No um, question. So it's it's one thing for me to say we should all get to global zero. It's another thing for me to say, like, Iran or, um, you know, any other country, Venezuela, you know, pick, pick the country that's sort of on uh, America's perpetual shit list, uh, that these guys shouldn't have a nuclear weapon. It, it seems, the logic seems pretty straightforward to me that um, they, they probably ought to be at least looking pursuing. to develop a, yeah. uh, a capability, if not an outright uh, weapon. Um, yeah, breakout capability
0: is what it's called. Yeah,
1: you know what? 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 The the North Korean experience versus, let's say, the Iraqi experience or the Libyan experience says that uh, you you really ought to you know think about getting yourself a, a nice little deterrent capacity.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I'm sure at some point, we'll have someone uh, to talk about nuclear weapons uh, from the theoretical level. Uh, And also, I think we should do like a a six or seven part series on maritime law. We constantly gesture toward it. People would love that. Yeah, it's a pretty, a uh, pretty interesting subject. Speaking of a maritime law, why don't we go to a country that is also a island, or at least half of one, and that is Haiti. Uh, there's been a lot of developments there, Derek. Uh, what's been going on with the newly formed Haitian government? Um, yeah, well, it's sort of the newly formed interim government,
1: and the the question is how long the interim is going to last. At this point, uh, there's a lot. There've been some some. New revelations, let's say, in the investigation into the assassination of uh, Jovenel Moïse, the former president of Haiti, uh, earlier this year. Uh, chiefly, there are, there's evidence of two phone calls that the current Haitian prime minister, Ariel Henry, uh, made to one of the chief suspects uh, in the assassination, a man named Joseph Badio, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, uh, but a former Haitian official who was fired Uh, by Moise and is sort of, you know, uh, in in terms of the search for a mastermind, like somebody who was uh, behind the whole plot, the assassination plot, he's been uh, on the list. And it turns out that Henri uh, called him a couple of times or they talked on the phone at least a couple of times on the night of the assassination, uh, according to phone records, like just a, a few it's hours. not a good sign for him not, not yeah, being involved. Yeah, Not really. I mean, circumstantially. <laughs> yeah, it, it does suggest a certain uh, a certain involvement or something. Uh, so uh, H- Hades, now former chief prosecutor, Bedford Claude. Uh, went to a judge, requested um, that a judge charge Henri in connection with the assassination earlier this week. He had requested an interview with Henri to talk about the phone calls, but without a president, there's really no legal authority in Haiti that can force the sitting prime minister to comply with an investigation like that. So uh, he asked a, a, a judge involved in the case to charge Henri um, to to sort of, you know, take things forward. Henri fired him, uh, fired the prosecutor. Trump-esque move, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so, um, and that was followed um, Wednesday by the resignation, uh, here's another name I'm going to butcher, of Renaud Louberis, Louberis, I guess, uh, who uh, has been... The secretary general of Haiti's council of ministers uh, resigned on Wednesday, sent a letter, you know, his resignation letter saying he uh, couldn't serve on can't serve under somebody who, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, tends to sort of flout justice and refuses to cooperate with the authorities. Uh, so very pointed uh, resignation letter. Uh, Henri has now fired uh, his justice minister. That's just, uh, I guess, it was late. Wednesday uh so that's the latest thing here and it's it's um it's not good. I don't yeah, it's know what looking to say pretty about unstable there. But for a country that was already unstable before the president was assassinated, whose politics were already uh, in a mess before the president was assassinated, now you've had the president assassinated. The prime ministers may be implicated. Maybe these things are being drummed up because there's some kind of a power struggle going on in the government. Who knows? But uh, you know, firing the prosecutor, firing the justice minister. You've got senior people resigning, uh, criticizing Henri on the way out the door. It's it's not good. Uh, it's not stable. Uh, there's supposed to be an election at some point to kind of uh, sort out the, the political limbo that Haiti is in. But, um, you know, whether whether that we'll actually get to that point at this uh, at this stage seems
0: uh, unclear. So it seems like there's clearly a lot of instability within the government um, for probably a variety of reasons. My question is, what is you know what is the 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 um, regional implications of this sort of Haitian instability right now? What do the the Caribbean countries around Haiti? Uh, what are they saying, if anything? Or does it just look like you know um, there's chaos within Haiti itself? What is the Dominican Republic saying? Has uh, any have any U.S. Uh, U.S. officials gestured toward anything? Or it just seems like you know everyone's staying out and seeing how the cards shake out. That's my sense, but I'm curious if I'm wrong.
1: That's my sense too. And I mean, this is all stuff that's happened in like three or four days, so um, it's it it may be a little early to start talking about regional reactions. The sense that I get uh, is that after the assassination, um, you know, the Dominican Republic in particular. I mean, they they put their efforts into uh, putting up a border fence, basically to to you know limit. The, the chances of migration, and that's, uh, you know, that's uh, one consideration here for for countries in the region. Is uh, is there going to be some kind of complete breakdown in order that will you know cause a lot of Haitians to go uh, fleeing to to other places to try and get away from it? Um, and and certainly, you know, with between. Moise's assassination, the earthquake, the hurricane that that, um, you know, they suffered through um, earlier this year as well, that there there's a a good deal of, uh, I would guess, concern about potential uh, refugee situation. But beyond that, you know, especially with these uh, latest events, I haven't seen anything kind of regionally, even from like OAS or uh, any of the regional organizations yet.
0: Very interesting. So, uh, we'll keep you guys updated as things proceed. Um, so let's turn to, uh, AUKUS, which is the unfortunate new name of a new (laughs) type of alliance that Joe Biden has just announced between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, uh, with regard to sharing technical information. So, uh, Derek, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, this is sort of uh, the latest and greatest kind of nakedly anti-China military alliance, I guess to to hit the to drop. Um, Biden announced um, in a in a virtual event with Boris Johnson and and Scott Morrison. He announced this new three-way uh, alliance, which, as you say, is being called AUKUS until I guess they come up with a better name. Um, the the main uh, the main immediate thing appears to be uh, that the U.S. and U.K. will um, help Australia develop its own nuclear-powered—I want to be very clear—nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed, uh, submarine uh, fleet. This should be a big boon for, uh, obviously, U.S. and U.K. defense contractors. Um, and and really, the interesting, a couple of the interesting. Immediate reactions have been um, not so much in relation to China uh but in relation to France whose uh, naval group consulting firm had a big contract right. uh, with the Australian navy to develop new diesel powered submarines and that contract has now been scrapped and there's uh, been there was
0: a lot of fighting within that right about due dates and money and things along those yeah, lines so my I understanding mean, it, was that had been like on the ropes for a while
1: it's it wasn't i mean it clearly wasn't in in a good place but the um the the sort of death knell of the deal and and this is interesting because i think it get gives you a sense of uh, what people really care about when they talk about foreign foreign affairs and uh military policy and it's it's you know what are you giving my defense contractors but you've had um you know comments from uh, the foreign minister, Le uh, French foreign minister. Again, I butchered that name. I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, talking about this being a, like a knife in the back and a betrayal by the U.S. and the U.K. and like uh, just really harsh language. I think um, there was a tweet. I'm going to dig it up here from a, a, a French um, official, Philippe Etienne, who's the ambassador to the United States. Uh, just like out of nowhere, <laughs> mentioning that 240 years ago, the French Navy defeated the British Navy in Chesapeake Bay, paving the way for victory at Yorktown and the independence of the United States, like with no, you know, apropos of nothing. Uh, oh, he just how he how interesting. Tweet, yeah. tweet about that on Wednesday after the announcement of this deal. So, I mean, like, this is a really big deal for the French government. They're very pissed off uh, about the loss. I mean, it was it was a very large contract, it was like 90 billion dollars or something. So they're uh, they're very pissed off about this. And there's a sense of. Betrayal, because Biden has sort of favored the European Union over the UK so far, and now here he's kind of lurching in the other direction and working back with the to UK. the special
0: relationship, baby. Yeah, like stabbing
1: <laughs> you know France in the back as as yeah. Le said. It's
0: interesting. It actually reminded me of sort of these like turn of the 20th century Anglo-America dreams of world domination, like the United States coming together with the Commonwealth to to challenge other powers. It's like this big throwback that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of in a long time. You know, the history of the English-speaking peoples type stuff, and it's yeah. kind of interesting that the French are responding in a similar way. It is, and I mean,
1: China's response has been sort of like you know, be careful what you wish for. Like they've just sent you know, uh, issued like some very uh, vague, threatening statements that don't really say anything. But uh, the real, like the real howls of outrage have come from France. I I also wanted to to point out if we're as we're talking about. August, I don't know if you saw the event or the video of the event where Biden forgot Scott Morrison's name, the prime minister of Australia.
0: Thank you, Boris. And and I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. (laughs) Thanks, pal.
1: <laughs> he's really a, so a, a
0: fantastic guy when, I mean, his <laughs> speaking. I don't know if you've noticed, Derek, but when you read his speeches, the, the White House transcribes his misspeaking. Like, uh, I, I remember he was, trying to, he was trying to say a word. I don't remember what it was, but it was like he said, furcus. And I think he was trying to say, like, for suggestion or something like that. So, but they kept on transcribing the his <laughs> – it's not quite a malapropism, but basically his, right. his misspeaking, which I don't Just think kind – of never seen that before in, in the past i don't remember which presidents of course stumble over words but with biden they're they're keeping it in i wonder if that's sort of like you know this this subtle dig at him i don't know
1: i don't know if it's a dig or if it's like he, they want to do a grandfatherly image of like a you know kind of right uh, a nice old man. sort of yeah, yeah. I, I don't know i don't know but this this was funny and it's it's funny for Uh, It's sort of tragic for Morrison, who bent over backwards to, uh, you know, make nice with Donald Trump, uh, to have Trump's replacement kind of look at him and say, who are you again? (laughs) Why are you here?
0: (laughs) I just Uh. that's that's worth it. So, has uh, we've talked a lot about how France has responded, but has China indicated anything about this? I mean, this seems to be, you know, part of the broader shift toward East Asia and, you know, quote unquote, great power competition and. St- solidifying what might be considered sort of the ring around, uh, East China. Has there been any discussion right. at all or have their, uh, their
1: foreign ministry issued a statement that, uh, you know, it didn't really say anything that they, they talked about. Uh, you know, they criticized the, the alliance for threatening regional peace and, uh, bringing back, uh, they, they called the obsolete cold war mentality, um, they said, you know, the U.S. and and U.K. and Australia are only going to hurt their own interests. Like, this, you know, you're only typical, you're only hurting yeah. yourself here. It's very typical yeah. uh, diplomatic diplomatic stuff, but uh, not not nearly as as interesting and sort of as as raw and hurt as, as the French response has been.
0: That's really interesting. I'm curious to see if we'll hear anything uh, more from China on this in the coming months. Uh, And as always, as I said earlier, we will keep you updated. But let's turn. Oh, the
1: other. I should say there's one other country that's had a response to this, which is New Zealand, uh, which has a very strict non-nuclear policy and says uh, Australia's any nuclear powered submarines that the Australians build will not be welcome uh, in New Zealand waters. That's interesting. Why do you think that is? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not familiar enough with the, their non, you know, their sort of anti-nuclear policy, but uh, it sounds like it's strict enough that even a nuclear powered military uh, vehicle can, you know, is, is banned
0: basically. That they're not going to do it. Oh, right. that's, that's, well, uh, maybe, uh, a, a split in the, uh, Australian New Zealand, uh, friendship there That's <laughs> to right. be decided. Right. Uh, so... Let's uh, move to the major uh, news event of the week, and that is the preview of Bob Woodward's new book titled Peril about the waning days of the Trump administration, and particularly uh, what's gotten the most news and what's probably the most important thing revealed in the Woodward book is the reaction of Mark Milley, uh, who I always think of as Mike Mills, the bassist from R.E.M., Uh, but Mark Milley, the (laughs) chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, how he responded, and what he did in the waning days of Trump, uh, basically after his uh, Trump's loss in the election to Biden. So, Derek, what what did the book reveal, and what is so um, you know nerve wracking or uh, anxiety inducing about what Woodward has shown?
1: Yeah. So uh, the book shows, and uh, you know, I mean, I haven't seen the book; I've only seen a couple of excerpts. Uh, of it, but it, it says that basically in the waning um, days of the Trump administration, or months, let's say months or weeks of the uh, Trump administration, Millie became uh, very worried that Donald Trump was going to. Um, I mean, it's unclear World War three. I mean, he became worried that Trump was going to either launch nukes at China or uh, uh, some kind of a military strike on China. Um, And and so he basically, yeah, I mean, you know, this sort of. He responded by doing some things that I think are very uncomfortable to think about in terms of precedence. He, uh, you know, called senior military leaders into a meeting and said, "If this guy gives you an order to fire nukes, you have to, you know, check with me first, uh, or you know, I need to be involved in that, um, or to you know, to do anything basically to attack China or any any you know anything in that direction." Um, supposedly, he he according to the Woodward book with Woodward and and Robert Costa uh, wrote it. He he contacted the Chinese, the the head, the sort of senior level of the Chinese military, to say, "Hey, look, I'm a little worried about something. Don't worry. If you know, if uh, he gives an order like this, I will give you all a heads up, and uh, we don't need to, you know, let things get uh, get out of control." So, it, it so is this is really I, interesting. I know you've got some thoughts about this, and some of it. Uh, seems okay to me in the sense that right this uh, is what's I don't tough. mind the senior, you know, the right. the, the head of the joint chiefs of staff having military to military contra- contact with with the head of the Chinese military, with the leaders of the Chinese military. Um, I don't mind even, you know, sort of implementing some kind of a check on the president's authority to launch nuclear weapons because I find that system to be fairly batshit. Frankly, uh, but on the other hand, a lot of this stuff verges on, uh, you know, a military commander just deciding he's not going to follow civilian uh, civilian orders and and do his own thing.
0: So this is really interesting to me because what we have in in historical. Reality is a system where ordinary Americans just don't affect these types of decisions. So we're all on the outside looking in. And what that means is we wind up rooting for various contingencies of the elite to do what we think is right. So on one hand, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Trump is is obviously a, a problematic, to say the least, a, a dangerous figure, particularly as he, he does seem to be legitimately losing his mind after he, he loses the election. He does seem to... You know, take his already unstable tendencies up to 11. And it's not ridiculous to think that he might have done something really damaging to both the United States and the world. That's a real thing. Uh, and so, on one hand, like you suggested, it's good that there's essentially military authorities in there that would have prevented that from happening. And that's one of the reasons, as I believe I've mentioned on this show before, that I was never particularly worried about, um, you know, Trump fomenting a coup, because I think to do that, you need the military authorities. And what the Woodward book reveals, the Woodward Coster book reveals, is that he very clearly didn't have that to the point where there was essentially a soft coup where the military was just going to disagree with the civilian-led decision, which is actually a good thing. The problem, however, is that you're suggesting is that this creates not only precedent, but it shores up the military as an independent force in policy making, uh, And this is just the reality of American foreign policy making since World War II in particular, and since the advent of the Joint chiefs of staff as an institution modeled on a british institution during world war ii itself the military which is essentially supposed to carry out civilian orders has effectively emerged as an independent voice in the foreign policy making process you see this throughout korea you see this throughout vietnam and you see this throughout all of u.s history uh since 1989. um so what what has wound up happening is that you had the election of someone who was unstable i think that's uh, difficult to deny um engendering the strengthening of this sort of third military force that would effectively serve as a check on the most extreme impulses of the president. Now, the problem is that, at least theoretically in a democracy, the president is supposed to embody the will of the demos of the public, and therefore the military is essentially supposed to serve a technical purpose. Function. So, this is a really difficult situation. And I think it's a situation that one almost inevitably arrives at when you make the entire structure of American foreign policy making as anti democratic as it is, where there's really no check on all of these things going on within the executive branch. And you basically have a court, literally a court equivalent to like the court of Henry VIII, deciding things as everyone else looks on and comments on it.
1: Yeah, I think it's – it's there's a lot of troubling implications institutionally. I also think it's troubling in the sense that uh, for our current political moment, uh, as screwy as it is, uh, this is a, like, U.S. military welcome to hashtag the resistance <laughs> moment uh, that, that I think is going to invest Millie and other kind of military officers with a, a certain – Um, problematic credibility with, let's say, Democrats or Democrats and never Trump Republicans or whatever, you know, however you want to define uh, that universe Um, that, yeah, I mean, sort of, you know, not not only institutionally are they claiming, you know, is this claiming a say in the policy process, uh, but politically, you know, it's it's uh, it's very dangerous to have the military kind of, uh, you know, treated deferentially by uh, a major faction, a major political faction. And I think this is uh, the kind of thing that sort of ingratiates uh, the military, or the, at least the, the senior levels of the military uh, with uh, the Democratic coalition and maybe will lead to some um, you know, greater reluctance to, to carry out oversight, some, uh, you know, more indulgence in terms of budgetary issues. It's, it's, it's
0: all, which they already uh, have an incredible amount of indulgence right, over all right. of those I things mean, it's anyway. All, yeah. All of
1: this stuff goes on anyway, but this is just another, uh, you know, another way for the military to be like, Hey, we're, we're one of the good guys. Uh, and even with a lot of the American public with the, you know, sort of, I mean, it's, Trump is not a popular figure overall, uh, you know, this this I, I'm not comfortable with what this uh, this does for the military's image, which should be, uh, you know, treated with with skepticism and should be treated, you know, as sort of a, a a last resort. But this is this is the kind of thing that that ingratiates them with um, the American public and with the political leaders.
0: And that's why I was always very worried from the beginning of the democratic obeisance to people like Comey or Robert Mueller. um, And in the wake of January sixth, the basically the security state, I I think it's the security state should be viewed as a tool that is an incredibly dangerous tool, a combustible one that needs to be, you know, reined in at basically every moment, particularly where we are given um, in, in history and the sheer power of that state. And I find it very worrying that so many people People uh, who are nominally, you know, roughly on the left or center left um, are so willing to um, put their faith in a security architecture that has done so much damage to both this country and the world. And I fear that this story about Millie is going to like you just said, shore up that tendency, which has already been incredibly problematic uh, since Trump was elected in 2016, and even longer since the all-volunteer force was created in 1973, I believe, 72 or 73, early 1970s. And so I think that, you know— it's a way for liberals to get some of their psychic guilt over not managing the empire uh, out. It's a way to relieve that guilt by putting faith, you know, in the troops or the military. And that's, you know, particularly when you're talking about the senior echelons, a very um, worrying thing to do. Uh,
1: yeah, I think, I mean, I, you know, if if there is a, I guess, um, you know, if there, there's a positive edge to this, Uh, hopefully it will kind of focus a little bit of attention on the procedures for nuclear weapons launch, which are a serious thing. Um, The president has the sole authority to order a launch. There is a two-man rule that's sort of supposed to serve as an authentication, really, not even a check uh, on the president's authority. And if this focuses some attention on the fact that we've invested really the power to end human civilization in one man who could wind up being donald trump or someone like him and leads to something like a legislative push to pass a a no first use policy or to change the procedures for for nuclear weapons launch that would be good but i don't know i i am you know skeptical that anything like that will come of it
0: uh i have my doubts as well so again on that happy note everyone. We hope you enjoy our interview with Samuel Moyne about his new book, Humane, and we'll see you all next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the weekly interview of American Prestige. Uh, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Samuel Moyne, who's the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School, as well as Professor of History at Yale University, and who's just released the new book, Humane, which is uh, uh, going to be an important book in the field and I think is already generating a significant amount of public discussion. So Sam, uh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it here at American Prestige. thanks for having me
1: sam i know danny has some um danny's just written a review of your your book so i know and first of all congratulations on the book um i know i know he he will have some more pointed questions but i thought maybe uh it would be a good idea to start with uh for people who haven't read the book maybe have seen a review of it here or there I, i feel like some of the reviews have uh, and you may agree with it. I mean, you may not want to comment on this. I feel like some of the reviews have not been uh, entirely fair to the argument that you're making. Um, but I thought we could start out with uh, sort of a general um, kind of why don't you give people a general sort of overview of the argument that, that you're making in the book and talk about one of the things that I, I think is really interesting that that um, may help kind of illustrate what you're you're going for in the book, um, is your own journey, which you talk about, you know, sort of uh, early on from uh, somebody who was uh, working in the White House, kind of, you know, supported the Kosovo intervention in the 1990s to somebody who's, um, you know, really taken a a much different approach to U.S. foreign policy since then. Why don't you just kind of start us off in those areas? Sure. So it's true. I... You know, worked for the government when I was a
2: law student. You know, everyone I know supported the Kosovo bombings. I just was doing an internship at the time. You know, my life has been narrated now. It's almost like a set piece uh, that I I converted. Um, you know, it's it's partly true, but um, you know, it's it's even more useful as a set piece. And I do I do
1: start with it in the book. Um, but, don't, don't worry, by the way, if people knew my internship history, the show would be canceled immediately. No, exactly. So, uh, but yeah, the truth is, you know,
2: Danny, Danny is totally right in his review that this this book in particular, although I've been a critic of U.S. foreign policy for you know, decades now, um, it was really inspired by my experience of Barack Obama's presidency when the war on terror was reset and it was made humane and legal or at least more humane and more legal than it had been before. And so that experience really inspired me to look back at the whole kind of modern history of the debate about what could make war moral. Um, Is it constraining it at the point of origin or keeping it from continuing once it starts as, as one side has argued? Or is it making the conduct of its hostilities, even if they're endless, more humane? And amazingly, you know, the debate about that was more lively in the 19th century, right when um, it was both like fathomable that we could, you know, stop wars or make them humane. And the partisans of both sides kind of had to decide, did they get along? Were they opponents? And so I really track their dispute up to the time of Obama, who convinces enough people, and I know we're going to get to this, people who matter, that a war that is fought humanely uh, is morally, you know, appropriate, or at least, you know, the 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 lesser evil. And I wanted to kind of indict this outcome because it seems like it's it's led us into a kind of eternal counterterrorism from which we're never going to withdraw ourselves.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. And I want to turn to the book in a second. But before we do that, you know, you and I are both intellectual historians and we study intellectuals. And I think it's interesting, uh, particularly in this moment, to historicize ourselves. So, you know, you begin this set piece. But uh, I, I'm curious where exactly the transformation takes place, because, you know, I could just I, – I, I have a personal connection. I was a, a, an undergrad at Columbia when you were, you know, just starting out your career. I knew Sam Moynes as this, you know, promising young intellectual historian who studied French intellectual history, but wasn't doing, you know, public work, you know, wasn't make, taking big, strong stands against U.S. foreign policy at the time. So I was wondering if maybe you could describe the transformation between, you know, the liberal – internationalism that, like you said, pretty much everyone embraced in in the late 1990s, particularly in relation to Kosovo. Uh, And then where that shift happened um, in the next, I think, 10 or so years, particularly, you know, we just passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So, because I, I think your shift, you know, you've received this, um, you've, I think, um, gotten this place in the pantheon, uh, of course, deservedly, but it reflects broader trends. So I was wondering if you could talk about how your own shifts in those years reflected broader trends in the transformation of, let's say, how people who are born in Gen X uh, approach them American foreign policy?
2: Sure. So, you know, so as I mentioned, you know, it's been, you know, useful for certain purposes to lean into this narrative that has been uh, crafted about my trajectory in, in in pieces like the one you mentioned in your article in the Chronicle of Our Education called The Disillusionment of Samuel Moyne. Now, it The actual truth, if you really want to get down to it, is that I've been a leftist throughout. I, you know, was a leftist in in mainly because I went to law school, and uh, going from Berkeley in grad school to Harvard at law school just radicalized me. And I met some leftist professors. Uh, This was even before the Kosovo experience. It's true that, you know, I took human rights classes that seemed to be like the, the idealism that captured a whole generation of folks that who are roughly my age. And I went, you know, to see like it as an experiment with my life. Do I want to, you know, join with them? You know, actually (laughs) the experience not of anything later, but just working in government convinced me that I wanted to be an academic. And from the time I got back from the White House, I was, <laughs> you know, gearing up to get a history job because I I wanted to avoid at all costs getting sucked into the blob. <laughs> However, after 2001, you know, we we saw the road to the Iraq war. I protested with Historians Against War, this organization that you know, grouped lots of lot of us together. I was on the streets of Manhattan that day, uh, which was the global globally largest day of of anti war protests in in history. I, I I would say, you know, once I did my work in intellectual history, I kind of came out as a, a kind of critic of U.S. Same. foreign policy in two thousand seven. <laughs> Yeah, so same. That's like the After earliest. I had my book. Yeah. I mean, I had to like, you know, get tenure and all that. So although I I published a very edgy denunciation of liberal internationalism in the form of the f- kind of human rights um, promotion before I got tenure in 2007. And really, from there, I kind of have continued in that vein ever since. So, I mean, like many people, like the Iraq War and the abuse that the pretext um, that we can... Helped the world through military force ended up uh, leading to you know the Iraq War um, radicalized me too, but it wasn't like ex nihilo or from zero.
0: So that's really interesting because, you know, your first two books are really decidedly academic. And I think the book that really, you know, major reputation today is The Last Utopia. Um, this book, 2010, right? And it basically, uh, the, the innovation of the book is that it argues, essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to summarize for listeners who might not have read it, that human rights is really um, invented in the 1970s in the tradition that we meaningfully represent. So I wanted to hear you reflect a bit on your shift to human rights history, which is very different from Levinas you know, I mean, I think it emerges from similar questions. The second book is about Treblanca and Holocaust memory. So there's always an interest in human rights and Holocaust memory was gigantic in the 1990s. You know, the historical profession takes a turn toward memory studies and the Holocaust is really the center of that turn related very much to the end of history and some sense, albeit unwittingly providing justification to American empire, I think at least in retrospect. So what engenders the shift to human rights and why do you think your generation of academics and intellectuals in the nineties and aughts really embrace that as an approach. So it really does go back to the nineties when
2: we were presented with human rights as the morality at the end of history. And, you know, um, America stood for them. Um, it, it may have missed its chance in the Holocaust, but now had learned, you know, to never let that kind of event happen again under its unilateral watch. Um, In the 90s, it missed its chance, at least for a very long time in Bosnia, in Rwanda. Uh, And the reason Kosovo was so significant is because it seemed to show that it could play the appointed role for it, even though the war was illegal under international law, under those rules I mentioned before that prohibit wars, not that tell you how to conduct them once you're in them. So I mean, like many others, I was just, you know, in my 20s in that decade. And like, you know, I I had to fight beyond um, what I what I was taught and told. And as of 2001, when I got to Columbia in my first job, you know, I began teaching a class called Historical Origins of Human Rights. Actually, when I auditioned for jobs, you know, Danny and I know there are almost none left, but at that time there were there were two or three every year, uh, and I got one. Fortunately, um, you know, I I said you know I'm interested in French philosophy, et cetera, and and I, I was I was amazed that they said, well, you've gone to law school, we'd love you to teach human rights. So I did, um, and I, I I taught that several times and kind of developed my own take on it. And when Lynn Hunt, the kind of That a a great historian and and the leader of, of the historical profession came out with her book. I saw an opportunity to kind of, you know, say something more public, which I had not before. And I began really, and I've still mostly reviewed other people's books as a mode of public scholarship. And that was my first time doing so. And I very much linked, you know, what the historiography ought to be about with like avoiding backstories of U.S. hegemony, which I think not by anyone's intention necessarily, the history of human rights risk becoming. And I tried to put it on a different track altogether.
0: Sam, what what would be your take on sort of the, this is too, I'm going to phrase it too strongly, but the human rights industrial complex, particularly as it developed in academia with a bunch of centers for human rights connected to NGOs, Um, because I think that ebb and f- like academic trends, they they ebb and flow. And I think we're now in an uh, in a low point for the historiography of human rights. It was very big for about 15, 20 years. And I think it would be difficult. I mean, it's very difficult, and nearly impossible to get a job now. But if I was advising a student coming into a graduate program in 2021, I'm not sure I'd necessarily push them towards the history of human rights, which I might have in 2005. So I was wondering, given that, you know, I think you, you said somewhere that this humane is like your, kind of goodbye to human rights a little bit. And given that you've published four books on it, I was wondering if you could reflect on that field as a whole, as it kind of recedes a little bit into, into history itself.
2: Sure. I mean, like all fields, like, you know, this one has risen and I think it's, it's certainly crested and in decline though. You know, it's amazing how many dissertations are still being written and books being published. Um, uh, but it 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 is one that I think um, was like so many fields, maybe all fields really was a referendum on our present. There was a lot of professionalization that needed to get done. It was non-existent as a field. And so there were just like interesting things to learn and big moves to make kind of chronologically, geographically, and so forth. And like I made one and you know, whatever. I mean, humane is not about human rights, um, it, except in the very broadest sense. I would hope it's like a step into a, another field on the way out of like doing international history, which I've now done for fifteen years. Right, and it's a liminal an, book. It's I a think. liminal book. It's a it's yeah. a hinge, so I can write about the Constitution and you know the Supreme Court probably in in the future. I mean, I still might write a, a book about the Vietnam War, which figures pretty significantly inhumane and it's just an endlessly fascinating topic. And, you know, it itself rises and falls in our historiography. But I, I think what happened with human rights it is, is in part it enjoyed the natural life cycle of fields, right. but also, you know, it, it, it rose as a field at a time that American hegemony became less and less credible, uh, at least to academics. And so human rights from having been promoted um, almost came to be seen as the handmaidens of you know, empire and neoliberalism, which I think in a sense takes takes it too far. And um, so I, I found myself over the 15-year life cycle of this field moving from being like a firebrand to being a reactionary because I would not acknowledge that Human rights are just bourgeois ideology. I think they have a valuable role to play. Just they're not enough. Uh, so it's it's definitely been an interesting, you know period.
0: And which I think, and then Derek, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll I'll let you quote unquote ask a question. But I also think that's that's probably <laughs> well, thank related. You, I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. It is your podcast too. Um, I think that's also reflected of generational experience, right? I think the a, a lot of the politics of the millennials could be largely explained by promises made in the nineteen nineties, and the, then the failures of Iraq followed immediately by the two thousand eight financial collapse. And right. so I think that you know that's why it's viewed as bourgeois ideology because. As you know, we believed as children and the second we reached adulthood, everything else seemed, you know, it seemed to be of course. total bullshit. So it's very interesting, like uh, the, the sort of shifts into historiography as they, um, as they represented in your own uh work. Absolutely. But I just want to make that point.
2: Sorry. Yes, no, man, please. I just want to say that, you know, as someone who sees my role as corrupting the youth as a teacher, you know, <laughs> it, it seemed like really important to kind of interrogate this you know, 15 years ago when I had like, you know, 18 to 20 year olds who thought that human rights were, were the sole mode of saving the world. And if they wanted to not be bankers, they had to be human rights activists. And I really wanted to kind of shake them. Now it's like, you know, um, there's no, there's no, no one believes that. And, you know, um, it's not like I see a lot of socialists or even leftists in law schools. Um, And Yale is an extremely conservative institution, even amongst the undergrads. Even so, you don't have the human rights millennialism I originally set out to, you know, take down a peg.
1: Um, This is still sort of dancing around the the book, but I wanted to ask you and kind of to bring us into the war on terror uh, era a little bit. Um, we're still in the um, halo as we're recording this interview. We're still in sort of the 9-11 anniversary halo. So I think this is a a fair question to ask. We did a a September 11th episode for the podcast and we spoke with uh, Jim Loeb about the origins of neoconservatism and the way that neoconservatism kind of seized on uh, the September 11th attacks. There are other strains of the foreign policy establishment that played into the response to September 11th. And as a critic of sort of liberal interventionism or liberal internationalism, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, what is your sort of impression about, you know, having gone through the nineties and the, the hand wringing about the failure to do something in Rwanda, which, you know, really was a formative thing for, let's say Samantha Powers, you know, one of the leading uh, proponents of liberal interventionism kind of, you know, coming out of that decade and, and having the, the September 11th attack attacks happen. How did liberal internationalism or liberal interventionism kind of um, play into the response and the the formations of the the war on terror?
2: So I, I think you know the the basic answer has to be that most liberal internationalists were either you know on board with or supine in their resistance to where the neocons took the country after 9-11. And and indeed, we we really live in the world that the neocons made. You know, it's part of the point of humane is that the resistance there was um, ended up like touching up a a, a neocon project. Um, And I think that's because the neocons understood that they could sweep in liberals to this reactivation of nationalism and imperialism. And it goes on. So I I think you know if we look very carefully at those critical years after 2001, you'll find a lot of like the leading liberal internationalists either very tepid, um, like Samantha Power in in the period when she actually waffled a lot about the Iraq War, um, or just embracing the thing um, as so many did, Michael Ignatieff and you know down on down the list. and so to me, like I'm curious, like what they've learned. I think there, there's a sense in which w- we've all learned like no one can rebut the lesson that every American intervention, even allegedly for a good cause, seems to make the world worse. Um, and it's not like you have their their optimism remaining even for them. On the other hand, the, the the results of their former optimism have left us locked in to endless war, and it's something that I think, like, you know, props to uh, the neocons, to John Y. et cetera, um, who 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 faced resistance, but it was very partial and selective resistance that actually got the liberals to like save the neocon project for an indefinite future. Um, And the national security state has never been stronger in American history and like American extension of its power. Even though I want to, we probably get to this. It's been set back in various ways by like the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And there was like a freak out and kind of mourning session around that. Nonetheless, I don't think we should conclude that America is not still very powerful very deeply entangled with the world still fighting gearing up to fight endless
0: counter terrorist war I think that's right, and I'm very much not a declinist, and I don't think the American Empire is in any sort of serious decline. All the structures of the thing remain, and uh, remain, and all the funding remains. And I also think, and we'll get into this a little bit. I want to turn to the arguments of humane now, but I also think that the the whole you could have decline at home without really affecting imperialism abroad, and that's I think probably unique or in worsening history. it, yeah, or worse or worsening it, and often oftentimes. Whereas if you're looking at the Ottomans, the British, the Romans, whatever, collapse at home would affect the actual imperial apparatus i'm not sure that's the case well and, given and those the sorts of technologies with, with pressure from over from abroad i mean there's nothing
1: like that pressuring right. the u.s empire right now so yeah, that's a great you know, point, talk yeah. about like the ottomans you know they were collapsing internally but they were also facing enemies that were you know surpassing them and and uh, it was the combination of those two things i don't think one of them one of them is totally missing in the the American context the I agree with that pressure. totally except
2: that I, I strongly believe that this moment will will come to be seen as a moment when um, the a new cold war was was um, launched uh, and and so enough people are are at least under the impression that it would be useful to pretend to have such an enemy right, uh, right. To, but to I think take that's us over is. the it's threshold pretending. but I, I agree with you completely yeah I agree with you on the underlying facts
0: Maybe the university will be funded again, like the National Defense and Education Act of 58. Um, Yeah, I think the big difference, of course, is the embeddedness of the U.S. and Chinese economies is just totally different than the U.S.-Soviet Union. But we'll talk to that because I want to get to you, Maine. So I think what you just described, sort of that the liberals um, shoring up the neoconservative agenda was probably the inspiration for this book. So maybe you could take us a little bit through the argument. Um, you know, it's it's primarily an intellectual argument until roughly, I would say, Vietnam, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. So so where does the book start, and what do you think is the crucial turning point? Because I think we might have just some empirical disagreements that we could talk about, sure. but, you know, for the listeners, uh, sure. take us through the book a little bit, please.
2: So, you know, the, the book begins... Um, with the 19th century just to show you some folks like Leo Tolstoy and others who were very um, anxious about this new project in Europe of making war more humane Um, and they they worried about the ways in which um, doing so could entrench war and you know the point of the book is basically to say they were those anxieties were um, premature in the short run but came true under Barack Obama in the long run, and I basically um, show um, that there there were there was a kind of long peace politics um, in the United States, but transatlantically, you know, mostly focused on creating a so-called white peace. Some like Andrew Carnegie openly talked about it in those terms amongst um, white emp- empires. Um, but that kind of agenda had priority, and and as I narrate in the book, it had priority because there were transatlantic wars, and especially women had the experience in the midst of kind of commercial, you know, luxury and modernity of of intermittently seeing their husbands, sons, and brothers die in war, notably World War One and Two, and the the result of that is to legitimate Pax Americana in the middle of the 20th century. And as I narrate it, um, that's double-sided because um, America does provide the white peace these folks dreamed of uh, in the sense that, you know, there's a cold war, but there's no kind of, no more violence of the kind that you saw in the later 19th and especially first half of the 20th century. However, the United States, which had, you know, fought brutally on its territory for centuries and in the Philippines and in Latin America in various interventions, does do something new after 1940, which is to assume the burdens of global hegemony, which means it begins fighting global wars of the kind it's never fought. And those remain brutal consistently with the traditions of European empire and with our history. And so that's like the baseline against which I want to kind of measure the coming of something new, which I call humane war. And I narrate the Vietnam War when there's an anti-war movement and the lawyers I look at um, continue to think that the the main norm is peace, not humanity. Um, And we should not want wars to happen, not pine for them to be fought humanely. But as I show, there are various reasons, notably the tanking of George McGovern Um, the kind of last peace candidate the Democrats have had, um, that a lot of folks begin to move towards the humanization agenda instead of the peace agenda long before 1989, long before 9-11. There are new humanitarian groups that start to monitor the international laws of war. The military shamed by Mila self-humanizes, as I call it, they, they begin to take the laws of war, which are newly humane in content, seriously in a way that no great power has really ever seen um, before. And lastly, the public demands a certain new level of humanity in its wars. And you see this in the Gulf War when you, know, you get this convergence of Humanitarians monitoring U.S. war for compliance with the humanitarian laws of war and the military having lawyers pick targets that don't violate um, the laws for the first time. So that sets up my story of the war on terror. And, you know, our traditional view is that um, America moved to the dark side. It's not that that's false, but it was short-lived and in a way I see it as the last gasp of brutal war in an age when it was surprising first that there was brutality and that there was law that John Yu had to argue his way out of, which had never been the case that like brutality required any like legal interpretations to be authorized because you just broke the law or the law didn't prohibit it anyway. And so once order gets restored, um, you know, John Yu's authorization of illegal wars remain on the books. His torture memos are ripped up and Obama basically gives major speeches saying, we have to fight, the enemy is, it, it is eternal, but we're the good guys because we're not torturing anymore and I'm controlling civilian casualties with my new drone war. You know, Obama is, is so subtle because you know there are times in his speeches where he says we shouldn't be at endless war, but he also says now that we've humanized the wars, and since terrorists and war are like eternal things, uh, we've reached a kind of you know morally salubrious um, deployment so of thoughtful. American power, and so that's thoughtful. that's where we are today. <laughs>
0: Um, so I, uh, mean, there's a lot in there. Yeah, Shang, we, we've arrived. So there's a lot there, but I just, I guess I want to ask a question that builds on what we talked about earlier. Why do you think the 1970s is this moment of humane war and human rights? Because I think we would, and then I want to ask the broader question, which is about causality and right. what is or isn't epiphenomenal. Um, so so uh, if you could address the first one, sure. so why
2: the 70s? So So, I see you know three big factors. Um, first, decolonization happens, and if you're a new state and you've been treated to to brutal war from uh, white empires for centuries, actually your your first agenda will be to strengthen state borders against intervention, which is what the new states mainly tried to do, but they also put work in to Um, renovating the laws of war. So if there were interventions, they would be less grievous. Then there are the Europeans and especially the West Europeans who are done with empire and are allowing America to protect them and can take a moral turn, no longer needing to inflict the kind of historic violence for which they're mainly responsible in world history. Uh, So let's say the, the optics of morality Come with good timing for them. Uh, let's say you know helping them forget their brutal past and renovating their global reputation, even for today. And then finally, the Americans recognize that that these kinds of forces matter in 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 setting its global reputation. And Mele is is while it mainly helping the then extant anti war movement. Um, teaches humanitarians that maybe they ought to kind of pursue atrocities and, and their suppression for its own sake, especially since many of them do care in new ways about Holocaust memory, which we talked about before. And the military knows that it will take a horrendous blow to its reputation if it doesn't engage in making the rules, interpreting the rules self-servingly, but above all saying it's following them. And this is, I think, the predicate for a new kind of war that really has uh, is um, not just rule abiding, but rule abiding with rules that control how brutal it is, prohibiting targeting civilians, which in the long history of air war, from colonial policing to American bombing in the Pacific and multiple wars, is really not illegal until the 1970s. Controlling collateral damage, which is prohibited for the first time in ground war as well as air war in the 1970s. Um, And so these are big quantum leaps that the military shockingly says, we can do that. Now, of course, they have better weapons than they, in the wars they expect to fight. So maybe it's, they don't think it's going to be too costly. But those are the main reasons I see why the 70s were were, were kind of pivotal in making possible humane war, which had never existed before.
0: So, Sam, let me just take the the devil's advocate position that everything you describe is exactly right and it's epiphenomenal to more important structural changes so i want to i'm basically asking you to address the question of causality right. cuz one of the things that i find wanting about synoptic intellectual history as an approach is that it focuses almost completely on the ideational realm the realm of ideas not ideology the realm of literal ideas right. and so one of the criticisms that one Could level against synoptic intellectual history, especially when we're talking about larger questions of war, is that the story you tell is absolutely right, but it only mattered to a small number of elites who aren't in particularly well-placed positions so that they could sleep at night. But when you're trying to understand why America does what it does in the world— arguments about how human rights changed over time don't really explain that fundamental question. I was wondering what you would say to that criticism
2: you know I'll concede that I'll concede it I mean um and then explain why I think it you know um, this book is valuable anyway
0: um so no the book is valuable everyone should read it and I'd also liken your answer for you to talk about synoptic sure, intellectual sure. history so you know, I think of
2: myself more as a historian of ideology. Um, It's true in the old days, like I I did synoptic intellectual history of the kind I was trained to do. And that involved like hard texts and vulgarizing them in narrative form. Um, I'm not dealing with any like great thinkers in any of these uh, books. The closest you could come is maybe Vaclav Havel in The Last Utopian. He's not that impressive uh, kind of in philosophical terms. And so it, it's really more about like the the anatomy of, of the liberal conscience and the ideological work that certain concepts do. That said, of course, you're right that, you know, we can get into debates about how you explain social causation. I'm personally not a materialist. And I think ideology is constitutive Um, But certainly it's true that economics and great power politics drive a lot of our history. Um, What matters to me, though, in the end is like um, the audience of people who, um, you know, do exercise some autonomy in their choices. You know, so I'm always interested in, let's say, trolling the liberal mainstream and saying, here's what you did here's how you rationalized it and i think that it's really important um you know until we can you know overthrow that mainstream (laughs) to you know explain and and reach them which i think i can do on occasion um with with nagging questions about whether they are good people after all Um, and I, I think, you know, when I notice how furious these books make that kind of person, um, I, I feel there can be some success, at least in stoking a response. Now, does that mean that there are different choices next time? Not necessarily. Does it absolve them of of, of all the pressures that whatever you think the determinants in history are, you know, um, put on such actors, in the end, I think if we don't presume that people are free to resist those forces and 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 change history, I'm not sure why any of us would do anything. Um, so the argument has to be, can we look at those people who, you know, do for whom morality is important, who think that they're good uh, and ask them, are you sure?
0: And so just to build off that, so then... Related to your own sort of personal extraordinary success in academia, how do you think you're able to basically move from Columbia to Harvard to Yale while making these criticisms? I mean, have you thought about your own social space within that? Because that's a really interesting space you occupy. So how did, I mean, I know you've thought about that. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting, you, I, you know, to have a meteoric academic career, but to criticize from within Yale yeah, Law School, which you just hired as a conservative institution.
2: Yeah, First off, I, I entered the Ivy league you know um, as at, 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 in an, in another moment when the, the 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 European tradition you know which now seems dead as a doornail and kind of hiring teaching, etc us had had a, a, a you know a, a, a last chance. Um, and um, from there I think, um, the, you know, the last utopia was was for some reason, I, I, I can't, ex- I have thought about, but can't explain um, interesting to these people. You know, the truth is I wrote it as a historiography book for my fellow historians setting up this new field, but it got the attention of and lured me into law school, something I had renounced. Um, and at, the truth is that humane is the first book about law that I've ever written, um, and so it's not like it's because you know the work was exactly relevant to what they were doing. I think the case is that you know at, as the the two thousands wore on, it's it, it 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 appeared to more and more people, even in elite spaces, that they put their money uh, on the wrong you know square on the table and they began to diversify hiring conservatives as well as more you know radical types which who'd been banned for a generation from these spaces right um and i was in the right place in the right time at that in that regard
0: derek why don't you ask your question i have a million Uh, more but i've been talking too much
1: Well, I want to. Uh, this kind of fits. I mean, it sort of builds on what Danny was talking about in terms of the tension between humane war and and the question of war in general, um, and sort of the audience to whom you know you want to address these arguments. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is a theme that we've talked about on this show, which is the what Danny calls the demasification of war and the idea of shrinking. Uh, the burden on the domestic audience. So you you go from a conscripted military to an all volunteer military. Then you shrink further to uh, using special forces exclusively within the all volunteer military. Now you introduce drones and people who aren't even you know anywhere near the battlefield. Um, eventually, that's going to become autonomous weapons platforms so that even the idea of somebody sitting at a desk thousands of miles away doesn't doesn't factor into this um you know one of the things i I keep you know bringing up when we talk about this is we don't even ask people to pay for the wars anymore like we don't raise taxes we don't care about um you know any any kind of impact on the federal budget we just kind of lay out a trillion dollars every year for the military and, and don't question it um i think one of the the issues that that you get into if you talk about um, the notions of humane war and, and what people see uh, when they, you know, and, and whether whether you can affect people's opinion of war by making it cleaner, is there's two things to, to, to talk about here. One is the effect on them personally, and the other is showing uh, images of the effect on people, uh, again, thousands of miles away, the victims of these wars that we fight, my My question is, you know, I think this this bears out bear? somewhat in in American history, um is how how likely is it, or how do you do you feel like there there's a way to make the American public um care about that second f- aspect to the extent, to the same extent that it cares about uh, the burden that that it has on on us here? in the United States. And how does that kind of play into uh, the argument that you're making? So first, I mean, I want to acknowledge that there there are tons of factors in
2: the transformation of war in our time. Um, and its humanization is not at the top of the list in, in terms of like what's driving the bus. Uh, this gets back to Danny's point about causality. Um, I I agree that kind of the immunization of Americans um, it is was was far more important to George W. Bush and and indeed Barack Obama, who saw that Bush's popularity had tanked because of body bags coming home, um, and you know drones were providential for that reason. However. It had to matter to someone that the wars were, were fought humanely, i.e., in conformity with this newly humane body of law. Because Obama's two main speeches about the war on terror, his Nobel Prize address and his National Defense University address four years later, specifically on targeted killings, are about um, the humanity of the wars. And more than that, he thought it was really important to have a policy, partly to lock in future presidents, which even though Donald Trump tore up Obama's policy, sort of worked. Um, But also because he wanted to have a war fought um, humanely, you know, according to legal legal standards. And so I guess it's possible that that just made him feel better, but I doubt it. I think what he understood is that there were enough people to whom it mattered to make it the absolute centerpiece of both of those addresses. And so, you know, that's, that's my proof. It's not proof that this was the dominant factor in the demassification of wars. Although remember, this law affects all all war-making uh, and has affected the way that Americans have prosecuted uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, not just all the peripheral uh, and demassified wars. But it's, a, I think, of great importance because if not, we couldn't explain why Obama thought it was.
0: So I have a couple of... Um, responses to that. I think you're right when you're talking about the particular subset of let's just say, New York Times reading elites. I think it's actually yes. really critical for, for laundering empire for them. Right. I'm less certain that it matters for the broad swath of the American public. And I actually don't think that the broader public doesn't really matter in any way, shape, or form when it relates to foreign policy. You don't need to convince the public of anything because they don't care about it, ultimately, unless they're dying right. in Vietnam or they want right. to argue against George W. Bush. Sure. So I just wanted to make that point because I think right. then it leads us to... Um, what and we could right. sort of end soon. I'm curious what you think about the status of humane war today. As I so I just to put my cards on the table, I wrote on in the New York Republic please, I don't think it really matters. I think it was very much uh, an Obama era phenomenon, which which I see for a lot of different reasons as the last gasp of a particular type of meritocratic liberalism which I don't think even meritocratic liberals believe in anymore so I was wondering um mm-hmm. it's a, it's an error it's, it's an argument for people who believe in the United States and no one believes in the United States even amongst that elite as you could see because all the children are now becoming socialists and right for Jacobin as opposed to Leon wasseltier's new whatever persuasion or whatever the hell it's called liberties yeah <laughs> uh yeah yasha monk is persuasion right that's not where the cool kids right so there's like a, a loss in Gramscian hegemony, um, which I think humane war tried to do and failed to uh, right. and ultimately failed to do because the material realities yes. were were different. So I was wondering, where do you think is the sort of um where do you think humane war arguments for humane war stand in 2021? And where do you see the locus of debate shifting? Because it's interesting. Your book, the takeaway is like arguments about humane war are not the the, the major place. You know, you are, you have to talk about war itself. But it's obviously a whole book written a critique of humane war. So I was wondering where where you see all these uh, pieces fitting together.
2: So so as to your two main criticisms in the great review, I mean, I you know, absolutely I'm not claiming that you know humanity is of great interest to you know the average Joe or Jane, um, and indeed, you know Donald Trump understood that you know baying for blood is. It could have like really useful electoral (laughs) effects with certain crowds, even if, you know, you're not serious or you're you're blocked or whatever. Um, I just think that, um, yeah, the book the book is oriented um, not towards the, as you say, excluded majority from foreign policy, but uh, towards those who actually said it. Um, even today, I'm 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 less certain um, than you that this is like a short-lived phenomenon. Um, so you know, as we've discussed, you know, a few minutes ago, we're we're executing a pivot to China, but that's not going to result, as far as I can see, in um, big conventional um, war anytime soon. It could someday. Um, A lot depends on whether we think, I don't, that China has like grand geopolitical ambitions or even wants Taiwan back or whatever. Um, So if I'm right that we're entering a new Cold War, we can't stop it, sadly. You know, millennials can't stop it. Brooklyn Marxists are not, you know, are not. How dare you, Sam? How dare you? so so so, what remains is the counter-terrorist war that Joe Biden was very clear um, will be intensified in in response to the withdrawal from and disorderly, you know, collapse of uh, the Afghan Afghan government. So um, that war is humane, and I do think it. This book comes out at, at a propitious moment in the sense that liberals responded to Donald Trump. Some by saying, look at the monsters uh, that the monsters we unleashed, look at the presidency we created. Um, we have to oppose war now, not just you know bring our legal cosmetics to it, but a, a big set of others, uh, including you know those in charge, Antony Blinken at, at all. I think. Are in continuity with prior foreign policy and can be expected to fight, you know, counterterrorism, uh, you know, to bring counterterrorist violence wherever they think uh, it's necessary and to preserve those policies that make it more. Like, morally uplifting at least to enough people. So that seems to me the indefinite future, not a passing fad.
0: I agree with the structure totally. I just don't think you're you're going to see time will tell. I don't think humane war is going to be needed like it was during the transitional period. Now that the structure is in place, you don't sure. I don't think the arguments are as I native. think it depends. I
2: mean, it's being fought right now in Somalia, and oh, yeah, you know, uh, at the, the, but there's no doubt it it comes and goes with the perception of threat. Um, and it's not just being waged like everywhere at the same, you know, at the same levels all the time. And that wasn't even true in Obama's own two terms. Uh, and Trump, in his first two years, really did expand and intensify humane war against ISIS. Um, and then he won. And the last two years of his presidency were much less warlike, probably the least warlike two years in in 20. Uh, and so can it wax and wane? Absolutely. Is it somehow superseded? Not as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. The structure will wax and wane. It's how it's justified in amongst monk's tomb. So uh, one, I think
1: one of the audiences that that you can reach with this book and, and are, you know, is sort of part of that liberal elite who are interested in uh, humane war is the sort of the the foreign policy media, basically the foreign policy press. Uh, And my question, you know, having witnessed the way that the Afghan withdrawal was covered by most major media outlets with a lot of um, you know, a lot of, again, just kind of hand-wringing about the plight of uh, women and what's going to happen to them under the Taliban, which are legitimate concerns, uh, but, the you know, and and minorities as well, and all of these things, you know, legitimate concerns, uh, but rooted in a, a sort of cosmopolitan, like these are the people in Kabul who are going to suffer uh, from Taliban rule. Whereas I could count on probably one hand, uh, it might, might extend into two the number of pieces that I've seen written about women and minorities in the Afghan countryside who bore the brunt of the conflict, uh, and, you know, found some reason if not to support the Taliban then to at least be indifferent uh about who you know who's in, who's winning the war um i I wonder if you could talk a little bit having gone through that experience about the challenge uh that the the media poses in in kind of um you know delivering the message of the 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 horrors of these even you know quote unquote humane wars and and how uh to sort of take that on so it, I agree with you that the the weeks around the withdrawal were kind of
2: remarkable um, in their imperial nostalgia and their kind of their their creation of an opening for some of the old school views about you know American indispensability. Um, I think most of the media coverage was determined by the very simple fact that many of those who were reporting on Afghanistan and had been there had friends. Um, and they were urban, you know, friends, um, not the ones whom Anand Gopal um, had in his fantastic reporting that actually involved leaving Kabul and some of the other um, urban centers. And, you know th- these journalists were understandably concerned about the fate of their contacts. And, you know, that I think, slanted their coverage. I think it's widely acknowledged that, that that played a role um and the trouble was it it allowed some of the old imperialists to kind of come out of the woodwork for a week but you know the truth is that afghanistan you know fell a long time ago um we we went from a hundred thousand troops um under the Obama surge to eight thousand by the time he left five thousand by the time trump left and it's true that it's a world historical event that the government wasn't able to you know defend itself or you know get its troops to do so but um, who knows how long it would have lasted the truth is that we we transitioned from this heavy footprint war to the more like demassified i call it light or no footprint war a decade ago and so it it, it i wouldn't assume a lot from the coverage, which probably was just a kind of blip. Um, and what will be interesting is whether the the intelligentsia continues trending in the way I think we've talked about earlier in the podcast that accepts the limits to American power that kind of chooses a few more wars of choice uh, in the coming decade than in the last two.
0: It'll be very interesting to see. So let's end on this question. Uh, and this is for the real Moyne fans out there. So uh, Sam, I was just wondering in the Chronicle, you know, not many people get articles written about them in the Chronicle. Um, and I think not many people have such a, you know, a, a number of young intellectuals sort of congregate around them. And I refer to the Moyne circle, sort of a joking reference to the Georgia Christ of, of Heidelberg in, the, in, the, in uh, the 1920s. So what do you think it was about sort of your writing or your affect that attracted so many people who then went on to real careers in letters like Stephen Wertheim, Mira Siegelberg, Tom Meany, David Marcus, and not all of these people were your students. Danny simons Jenkins, my good friend, I got to mention him. Um, so what do you think it was that you were offering that other people at Columbia at the time weren't? And then we could end on that.
2: Well, so I would identify a couple of things. I'm not sure I, I buy the, <laughs> the kind of premise of the story. So the first thing is that some of these people um, w- chose not to be academics or, you know, couldn't get jobs or gave up the jobs they actually did get um, and instead, you know, sought to be kind of in in the literati and very successfully um, and so they they've done that under their own power i mean oh of course many of of the people you mentioned are terrifically talented i would say the period at Columbia you're talking about was was exciting because not just of of me or even less less me than a group of others who are all interested in a critical account of um international history notably mark miss um and so, you know, it, it was a time when I was younger and relatable and, you know, I hung out probably a lot more with some of the people on the list. And I did advise those who were wanted to be intellectual historians. But it, it was a, I think it was just a, a kind of moment when there was a celestial convergence of people who really were making a turn towards a, a more anti-imperialist historiography then had been all that central in in America since the days of you know William Appleman Williams uh, and his students, and of course that coincided, as you know, and as you reflect yourself in a in a kind of very broad millennial turn towards a, a much more critical attitude towards America's role in the world, and the teachers were you know the beneficiaries of that as much as the students were, you know, learning anything from
0: from us. Yeah, it'd be interesting to sort of do a, a history of that international history world of Colombia in the first decade of the 21st century. Uh, I think it wound up being especially influential in ways that might not have otherwise been predicted. But Sam, I don't want to take any more of your time. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing uh, to come on the podcast and uh, everyone we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks Sam. Bye-bye. <laughs>